Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton. The hard structures, the man-made structures, bulkheads, levees, walls, tide tide gates, um, they don't provide any ecological value, right? So yes, you can put them in. And after a certain amount of time, what you'll find, at least on the ocean front in particular, is that all that energy associated with storms beating against those walls will wash away all the natural features that are in front of it. So then you've lost the function of a salt marsh to provide you with a nursery for small fish, which is the basis of your recreational fishing industry or the basis of your commercial fishing industry. Welcome back to the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 155 hardening our shorelines against coastal erosion. In this episode, I'm talking with Tim Dillingham of the American Littoral Society. Tim is a biologist by training. He's the former director of the Sierra Club in New Jersey, and he's the current executive director of the ALS. In case you didn't know, as I didn't prior to our conversation, The American Littoral Society is an organization that's protecting the coast through education, conservation, and advocacy. During this conversation, Tim highlights the mission of ALS, details the biggest impacts on coastlines, and how ALS uses education to help reduce erosion. He also talks about restoration projects, how natural materials are being used, and why those natural materials have benefits far beyond just one project. Hey, everybody, and welcome back. As you heard in the introduction, I have a special guest today uh, here for this episode, Tim Dillingham. Uh, Tim, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate uh, you coming on to talk about something that over 150 plus episodes I have yet to talk about on this show, and that is the coast and the coastline. Uh, as a person that doesn't live on the coast, I tend to um, think of things not the coast, right? So it's not top of mind, but um, you know, re- recently read some articles and some different things on coastal erosion and was like, hey, I got to get someone on to be, that's going to be able to talk about this very important thing. Um, So thank you for coming on and talking about this. Let's, can we just start real quick with um, what is the American Literal Society? What is the mission? What are you guys, what's the purpose? Yeah. Well, Jason, thanks for having me. And um, I love to talk to folks and kind of bring the coastal perspective, um, even to folks that live inland because, uh, you know, the ocean 70% 70% of the planet, and uh, it really has a tremendous influence on everybody's lives, whether we uh, think about it in our day-to-day goings-on. Um, so it's always great fun to to talk about it. 
the American Littoral Society is a coastal conservation organization. It's it's membership based. Uh, we are headquartered um, in a national recreation area, Sandy Hook, New Jersey, a little town called Highlands, right at the mouth of the Hudson River estuary. Um, we've been here since 1961, and we have a mission of uh, promoting the study and conservation of marine life and its habitats. We work to defend the coast from harm, and we have a very big emphasis in our mission on empowering others to do the same. So we pursue those goals through education, through conservation work, which often entails uh, actual physical restoration of habitats, um, and through advocacy. So we are involved in um, many of the major laws that are um, you know, developed and considered and debated that affect the coastline. So what you mentioned uh, protecting the coastline from harm. I mean, what what is what are those things that are negatively impacting our coastlines here in the United States? Well, you know, we started um, on that 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 sort of mission part in the late '60s, early '70s. Uh, we were involved in the fight to ban DDT. Um, because of the uh, the impact it had on coastal raptors, right, osprey in particular, um, we really had a huge amount of work uh, in the '80s and '90s to end uh, ocean dumping of the sewage sludge from New York City in the ocean right off the coast, uh, as well as industrial wastes. Um, and now we're uh, involved in um, often uh, the physical changes to the coastline, right? The continued development on barrier islands. Uh, we still lose uh, an inordinate amount of habitat, uh, salt marshes, uh, oyster reefs. Um, water quality is a huge issue um, as the upper parts of the watersheds that drain to the coastline develop, they end up loading up uh, lots of toxins, uh, nutrients, pesticides from lawns. So we're involved in the management of stormwater and uh, and growth management um, as an extension of that, trying to find ways to be more sustainable. Um, and then there's always you know proposals to build industrial facilities along the coastline. Um, there are still uh, uh, still many too many discharges of toxins and sewage waste into the waters. Um, in the Northeast, uh, uh, we have a historic problem with combined sewer overflows where. When it rains too much, um, literally billions of gallons per year of, of untreated sewage flow into the Delaware River, the Hudson River. Um, so there's still a, a tremendous, unfortunately, a tremendous number of threats uh, to the coastline. Um, and then we and then we often deal with um, what we would think of as as equity issues, right? So public access to the coast, um, the public, the the coastline is. A public trust um, by law and by uh, by heritage. Um, so we have had a very active history of going to court uh, often to defend the right of the public, fishermen, surfers, beachcombers, to go onto the beaches and to do that freely. Uh, in fact, to do it in a way that ought to be actively encouraged. Um, so. We still have our hands full. There's still a lot of work going on, even though I think people have uh, become much more conscious about the environment and um, and, and the ocean. Uh, and I think that has come about through education of kids in particular. So I think we're seeing generational changes in our attitudes. 
So I want to touch on something first uh, before I get into my next question. It's just uh, sort of an anecdote of something that I've witnessed. You know, we here in Western Pennsylvania, we have a lot of creeks that run into rivers. And then, you know, like I live very close to Pittsburgh, you know, which, you know, we have the Triangle and we have, you know, the two rivers, you know, the uh, Allegheny and the Monongahela coming in to form the Ohio. And eventually it's going to get to the Mississippi and um, the Gulf of Mexico and uh, you know, in my neighborhood, uh, just before I actually bought my house, um, they went around and all all the houses that had downspouts connected to the sewer system had to be removed, right? Like taken out and then it had to go up onto, you know, you had to disperse your rainwater onto the ground. And the reason for that was that the sewer system was just getting, when it would rain, especially hard, it would just get overflowed. And yes. then, um, you know, all that extra water, which is now contaminated with sewage would just run into the creeks and eventually into the, the rivers and things like that, you know, contaminating, you know, all kinds uh, of ecosystems. Um, so to think about that from a, a sort of coastline perspective as well, um, you know, even like, I think, uh, you know, growing up seeing, you know, um, runoff from the water from from like roads right you got these giant culverts that just go out to the beach you know and and you see that water that's coming out and going into the ocean like that can't be good right like uh, that can't be good for the ecology of the area um so just a little anecdotal there of you know uh, runoffs and you mentioned lawns and things like that like those are uh, those are not necessarily things that i on the surface would think about first you know, foremost when it comes to, um, you know, issues with the coastline, but that does make a whole lot of sense. I want to, now I want to switch gears just a little bit. You mentioned education there. So what is it that education can do to help with managing the coastline and making it, uh, you know, a little cleaner ecologically and, and better habitat? Right. Well, I think, um, you know, in order to protect and sustain the coastline and and all the resources that are there, whether that's the wildlife from, you know, shorebirds to uh, to whales and seals, which we have right out our back door these days, uh, to the fish, um, you have to understand a little bit about it, right? When you look out at the, at the ocean, um, you see the surface of the water. And unless you really have some knowledge, you don't understand you know, what lives beneath that water um, and and much less the mechanics of how watersheds and estuaries, uh, which are where rivers meet the sea or the ocean work, because in many ways, the environment is like a, you know, big, complex living machine has all sorts of rules that govern how the different pieces of it, whether the water or the edge of the shoreline, um, you know, how they all interact. So, what we try to do in order to, because ultimately what we're working towards is having everybody be a steward of the ocean and the coastline, right? Everybody to understand that they have an interest in it, that, that um, we want them to love it in the same way we love it. We want them to be as, as amazed by the life that's there and the way that the ocean works. So we have a philosophy of, of feet wet and hands sandy or hands wet and feet sandy, whichever way you want to go at that. So we bring people out to the shoreline and we drag a seine net, which is just a net that, you know, you 
between two poles and you drag it through the water and it comes up with all sorts of fish and crabs and jellyfish, seahorses, pipefish. And we teach people about all that life and we give them an opportunity to see what's there. And that education then opens up an opportunity for us to talk to them about the, about the things that are harming that life, right? Um, so the runoff from your yard, the runoff from uh, the, the combined sewers in Pittsburgh or Philadelphia or New York City. Um, and so that's a connection that's made between something that they value, right? The, and people become completely enthused by, by these little fish that they see and and obviously seahorses are always, are always a great attraction. Um, but then people start to think and they start to you know, say, well, I, that's important to me and I value that. And therefore, I'm going to think about the things that I can do or the things I can support that will help protect and sustain that, that wonderful um, a, a collection of ecology. Yeah, and that's a... That's a really great way to go about it, um, especially for us non-coastal people, right? Because you mentioned the watersheds, as I've already said, you know, we have creeks that lead to to rivers that are eventually going to lead to the ocean. You know, um, if I'm putting fertilizer or weed killer on my lawn and I think, okay, the bag says I need this much, um, but if I put a little extra down, it's not going to be a big deal. Or if I do it too close to a rain, um, you know, a real heavy rain, that's not going to be a big deal. But it's, you know, it's eventually going to affect, I mean, it's going to affect the immediate area, right? Right. Like that Creek, but it's also, you know, as we combine all these toxins getting into the water, as it goes further and further and closer and closer to, you know, the ocean, it's just going to get even worse with more toxins. And it's going to affect oftentimes a place that people love to go, which is the beach, right? Like you go there right. for the beauty and the serenity. And if, if we're destroying it, that's ruining a vacation spot. I, I hate to be the guy that like boils it down to one simple thing that, but a lot of times something like that is what actually really works in getting people's attention. Well, absolutely. And, and, you know, look, we're right there with those people who love to be on the beach in the summertime um, or in the wintertime for that matter. Uh, you know, we, uh, we lead lots of walks and get people out. Uh, even on new year's day, we lead a, lead a walk to, to come along the along the edge of the ocean, um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it is um, an understanding of the consequences of how something may affect something that you love um, that helps motivate people to change their ways, right? And um, and so, if you love coming to the Jersey Shore and having a week in Avalon or a week in the wild woods. Um, and you like being in the water and you like the fact that the water is clean um, and you get a thrill of seeing a pot of dolphins, you know, pop up just offshore, or maybe you go out fishing for striped bass or bluefish or fluke. Um, if you understand that all that's at risk, um, you may be a little more careful about how you apply your fertilizer, right? Um, and we do a lot of work to help folks make that connection. Right to understand that um, maybe if we disconnect our downspouts and build some rain gardens in our yards, not only will we have beautiful flowers, but we'll be helping to protect the rivers and streams in our own backyards as well as the life down the coastline. Um, and that's a connection people get if you uh, present it to them correctly. Right, if you start with how fascinating this all is and what a thrill we all get from dolphins and from you know fish. 
um, and and touch on that idea of responsibility because I, I think I think Americans are really great at uh, one loving and and um, um, taking care of their communities, uh, taking care of things for future generations. Right? If we make that connection uh, about around those values, um, the education leads to stewardship, and that leads to the change we need. Yeah, the making it personal is is what really sticks with people, you know. Yeah. Um, and and connect, like you said, connection to your own backyard can help, but you know, trying to make that connection to the coastline for someone like me that's you know six hours away there's a disconnect there. But if it's somewhere that I like to vacation, that I like to take my family to, and um, I want my son to be able to bring his kids and see a very similar, you know, quality of water and things like that, or maybe even better, um, making that personal connection is is what really can drive that want to of doing more. Um, so when it comes to coastline erosion this is you know something that that we've i feel like has been in the news um we've heard a lot about it it's often tied to climate change it's often tied to we especially seem to hear about it a lot whenever there's hurricanes or like real bad storm surges um is it just that like we we've always had hurricanes right um so why now is it that the hurricanes are are and these storm surges are doing so much damage to our coastline. Well, I think there's a couple things uh, to start with. One is that the coastline is a highly dynamic place, right? In its natural state, it's always changing. Um, we like to say that a beach is a place that sand stops on its way to somewhere else, right? It's always in movement, um, and so. The reason I think that we see it as a as a problem now or a crisis is because we have a lot more people who live along the edge of the coastline. Um, so we have a lot more development in places that traditionally flood. That when a hurricane comes through, the you know the waves and the storm would wash over the barrier islands, and that was a natural process. Um, and it, and it only became a problem when we had houses in the way of where that water wanted to go. Um, then I think that the severity of those storms and perhaps the frequency of them are increasing because of climate change. Um, and so, you know, when I was growing up, if we had a hurricane every six or seven years in the mid-Atlantic, that was pretty normal. And the really big ones came through once every 15 to 20 years. You know, now we're getting category, you know, four you know, much in category five, much stronger storms, much more frequently. And that's because climate change, um, the warming of the atmosphere because of the burning of fossil fuels has also warmed the oceans, right? And coastal storms take their uh, energy from the temperature of the water. So if the ocean is warmer, the storms are going to be, be more intense. Um, so, so it seems perhaps you know that we're more aware of it now, and, and I and I think that's because more people are at risk, um, and um, and and that's a reality, right? Uh, so we have started to do work and to think about, well, if the climate there is a certain amount of climate change that's going to happen, uh, we've already baked it into the atmosphere, into the climate, um, and so we have to learn how to adapt to that, right? We want to. Uh, we want to make sure people are safe, 
right? We don't want people to live at risk. Um, and we want to protect the ecological values that come out of um, the things that you find along the coastline, like salt marshes and oyster reefs and shallow waters, dune systems. Um, so we're trying to um, um, advance the idea of nature-based approaches to dealing with climate change or to reducing risk around storms, um, which is often described as uh, coastal resiliency, right? How do we how do we ride out the storm better? And we found that um, through research around the hurricanes that places that have big, healthy, wide salt marshes that still have beaches that have dune systems on them and places that oyster reefs are in place um, suffer less damage when those storms come through because they act to tamp down the flooding, they tamp down the waves, um, the barrier islands and the dune systems act as barriers, right, to the communities that are behind them. So there's a lot of value in protecting and then um, rebuilding or restoring those kinds of natural habitats and, and features. So why, why natural though? Like why not try to come up with or use man-made materials that might be better? Cause like a dune is still sand, right? Like it can still be washed away. Um, why not use some sort of, you know, levee type system that's made of concrete or or something like that like what what is it about natural that that you, you know your conservation group says this is the way to go not these man-made structures right right well so the hard structures the man-made structures bulkheads levees walls tide tide gates um they don't provide any ecological value right so yes you can put them in and after a certain amount of time what you'll find at least on the ocean front in particular is that all that energy associated with storms beating against those walls will wash away all the natural features that are in front of it so then you've lost the function of a salt marsh to provide you with a nursery for small fish which is the basis of your recreational fishing industry or the basis of your commercial fishing industry. If we lose the salt marshes, we pave over them or build walls around them, then that function, then we lose that, right? Which is important to us. We like to fish. We like fish in our diets, helps feed, the, helps feed people. You lose the um, ecological uh, role of uh, dunes in, um, uh, providing for migratory bird habitat. So there's a big uh, industry that people perhaps don't appreciate uh, with bird watching. And, you know, particularly during the pandemic, uh, millions of people discovered bird watching. And so there's there's an economy based around that. But if you destroy the habitats like those like the salt marshes and the dunes, you lose the birds and then you lose that. So um and then, the, and then there's a, and then there's actually an economic aspect to it, which is that storms are always going to happen, and um, in the end, uh, hard structures, when they get destroyed by the storm, which happens, you know, every hurricane you can look at where the levees in New Orleans breached, or where the walls uh, were pulled down, or where the bulkheads, uh, where the water, you know, splashed over the top of the bulkhead and eroded it from behind much more expensive to replace them, right? So they, um, so you lose 
all the values that natural approaches may provide you um, in addition to flood and, and storm risk mitigation. Uh, plus, when you have to go back and replace them and fix them, the hard structures are much, much more expensive to do that. So that's really not sustainable, right? At some point, I think we all feel like our tax dollars are going to run out, right? <laughs> and so, because all those operational costs and usually a good portion of maintaining those, those features falls to local municipalities and your property taxes. So um, now it isn't to say that that there aren't places that you would have to defend through harder structures, right? Lower Manhattan, my office, if I hike about a mile up uh, from my office as I look right at the lower tip of Manhattan, um, that's not a place where we're going to be able to do a lot of this. We might be able to integrate some of those features into um, how Manhattan tries to, New York tries to figure out how to defend itself. But in the end, right now, they're building they're building a levee in essence, right? Now they're going to plant it with trees and they're going to make parks out of most of it. Um, but but there's still a need for that kind of uh, practice or approach to it. But in many, many more places than you might think, we could rely upon the, the, the gifts that Mother Nature's given us um, to help protect our communities, to help protect all those things that underpin the ecology, which we also draw lots of benefits from. So uh, you mentioned salt marshes, you mentioned oyster beds, you mentioned dunes. Um, you know, so I'm a, uh, I'm going to do some assuming here that when you're looking at you know a place to do one of these restoration projects or to try to put some sort of bar natural barrier up, um, you're looking at sort of like site specific applications right based on the geo geographic location you're like you're like you say you're they're not going to put you know sand dunes in lower manhattan um so like what goes into that sort of process of deciding what is what what kind of materials or what kind of restoration should we do in this specific area so we go in and and look at the site and so the sites usually got identified um based on some uh other goal, right? So we have projects right now going on where we're rebuilding beaches that are migratory shorebird habitat, that are habitat for horseshoe crabs, um, that also provide some resiliency benefit to very small communities that are behind them. Um, we're doing one, we're trying to do one that um, the town, rather than building a bulkhead, uh, would like us to build a, a beach in front of it to protect a road. We actually just launched one in which the town, the folks in the town, uh, turned down a bulkhead and came to us, and we built a living shoreline there, right? So we used a, a bags full of oyster shell and rock to establish a tow. We built in new sand. Uh, we used coconut uh, fiber in um, a material called quar, which um, is uh, coconut, the, the fiber, if you think about the fibers on a coconut husk, right? Massed up into a log that's 100 feet long, tied up um, with about a foot and a half or two foot of diameter. And uh, we use those um, along places that we want to hold an edge in, but that we wanted ultimately to, to revegetate because it's organic, right? It's coconut husk fiber. Um, it will ultimately blend itself into the, the edge or the shoreline that we're working on. 
So we look at all the you know different goals and we talk to the community. We do a lot of um, um, outreach into the community, ask them what their goals are. And then we sort of go out and, and this is a little figurative, but we kind of look, just look at the site, right? Try to understand what, uh, how it's operating naturally, right? Where does the sand want to go? Where does the flooding want to go? Um, because, because we're trying to build with nature, not, you know, corral her and send her in a different direction, because ultimately that doesn't seem to work, right? Um, so we'll do a lot of site assessment. The, the Literal Society has uh, biologists and restoration ecologists on staff. And, and these people are, are really talented at looking at a landscape and understanding how it works. Um, and then finally, if we have available to us any science where somebody's been monitoring the beach for the years or monitoring where the birds or the horseshoe crabs use the area, um, um, we'll try to we'll try to incorporate that in. And many times it's just anecdotal. We'll talk to the guys from the Department of Public Works and they'll say, this is what happens every time a big nor'easter comes in. Right. This is how the water moves. This is where the sand gets eroded. Um, and then we factor all that together and try to figure out what the best approach is um, and how do you mix and match all these different practices that we have at our at our disposal. Are you looking at sort of like historical uh, vegetation that you know would be at that site and trying to plant like native species and grasses and trees and things like that? Or is it is it more of like a well, we know this grass has a deeper root system. Even though it might not be native, it will do better at preventing erosion on a on a big storm. Or, you know, what's the approach there? Well, the the great thing from our perspective is that the native plants uh, always tend to do best, right? Because they're the ones that evolved in this environment. So we use all native plants. Um, and uh, the American beach grass, um, you know, uh, bayberry, uh, you know, so the things that were there originally uh, are almost always the best, um, the best materials to use. Um, you know, the oysters, we know the oyster where the oysters were, we give them a hand by sort of holding them together until they can reestablish themselves uh, you know, by building the reefs. But, uh, but usually the, you know, the right the right material to use is the material that was there before. I, I have a question about the salt marshes. Um, you know, you mentioned that areas that have salt marshes tend to um, not have as big of, there's not as big of an impact from these big storms if there's a salt marsh already there. Um, so I guess really I have two questions. One, how do you build a new salt marsh um, if that would be a goal, if that's something that, that you can even do. And then two is, you know, does the organization have a hand in trying to prevent development where a salt marsh would be or something to, to try to preserve that there? Yeah, absolutely. So to take your second question first, uh, yes, we have spent a lot of time and energy trying to protect salt marshes and to adopt laws. We were, one of the primary authors uh, in New Jersey of a law called the Tidal Wetlands Act, which pretty much brought an end to filling salt marshes. Um, if you ever see uh, pictures of the Jersey Shore, you'll see lots of really high density housing right up against the edge of the water in places that used to be salt marshes. And there was just a terrible period of time 
the 50s and 60s and early 70s where they just pump sand out of the bottom of the bays and spread it onto the salt marshes and then built houses on top of it. Um, so we, you know, back in the in the 70s, uh, this was 72, 73, um, were very active in, in advocating to the state legislature that that needed to come to an end. And we were pretty effective in doing that. Um, so we don't see a lot of fill uh, of filling of salt marshes in New Jersey. Um, now, unfortunately, uh, other states don't have as strong a set of laws. Um, and I think ironically is because they probably haven't done as much damage yet, right? There's unfortunately this point you get to, you realize, oh, oh my goodness, what have we done here? We filled up all these salt marshes. Now I don't have any more shrimp and blue crabs and things like that. Uh, but um, so there are, there are, you know, nationally uh, still a lot of losses. The biggest loss of salt marsh in New Jersey now is because of sea level rise, right? So um, salt marsh, um, the plants that live in that community are, are very um, ecologically tied into their elevation in relationship to the tide, right? So they are intertidal, that the tide flows over them part of the day and leaves them, quote unquote, dry uh, during other parts of the day. Um, so as sea level rises, more and more time is being spent with those marshes being inundated or covered by water. And that causes them to break apart. Um, so the way that we try to build salt marshes, and, and you and we are mostly successful at doing this, is we'll figure out where that uh, edge used to be, right? Where did the marsh say, and, and we use uh, photo maps from the early 70s to figure out where these lines are. Where was it in 1971? And then we'll use those core logs that I was talking about, and we will set a boundary and just think about, uh, I guess like kids swimming pools are a really good image. You think about when you blow a kid's swimming pool up, how they usually have those tubular uh, rings, right? Mm -hmm. well, that's what the core logs look like a little bit, except they're made out of coconut fiber. Um, and then behind that, we will fill, backfill uh, the sediment from the nearby channels um, or boat ramps, because um, that's usually sediment that's washed off of the land or came from the salt marsh breaking apart. We pump it back in, get it to the elevation that we want it, which is usually just a little bit above where we think sea level is going to come in the next uh, 15 or 20 years. And then we replant it with, with the plants. And they take very easily. Um, for the most part, you know, they, they grow back in effectively. Um, sometimes you have to come back and replant them, but, um, but it's a pretty straightforward process. Um, and uh, one last aspect of that that's really wonderful is that planting salt marshes, like uh, if you've ever seen, you know, films of people planting rice, it's just like putting a plug of a plant into, into the muck, right, <laughs> into, the, into this very highly organic soil. And, uh, and we bring school groups out, faith groups, uh, you know, community members, and people come out and they replant these salt marshes uh, by hand. Uh, which gives them a stake in the preservation of them. That that's cool. The, you know, getting the as I talk to more and more people on the show, I I realize that getting members of the of the local community involved in projects um, definitely increases the chances of success for years to come. Just because those people now have a vested interest Absolutely. in in seeing the work that they did thrive and continue to to do well um i i guess i have a third question about salt marshes 
you mentioned that they're intertidal, that the tide comes over, right? Naturally, like that's how they work. Um, goes in, goes out. How how does a salt marsh help protect an area when it comes to storm surge and, and these bigger storms? I mean, wouldn't the water just wash over them and just sort of erode everything away when it comes out? I mean, excuse my ignorance on, on coastal dynamics, but, um, you know, how does a low-lying area like that help to mitigate you know big impacts from from storms right well so it depends on the size of the storm obviously and um and we we always say look there's 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 always a storm that's going to be one inch higher than you plan for right and uh um so so the, the marshes will get they'll get washed over um when there's surges um they'll they'll be you know under a couple feet of water or so but in many circumstances you know, the uh, the friction of the water moving across the plants that are in the salt marsh um, slows the water down, and and it sort of trips up the waves. So it reduces the energy that's in the water. It reduces the energy of the waves, and you know it's really uh, it's a really a pretty astounding um, um, process. Uh, and and I you know when I first started learning about this stuff, it was. It really took the science to be shown the science of how it worked and the fact that the communities that were indeed behind the, these areas did did fare better. Um, but they act they basically act as speed bumps against the storm waves, right? Um, and and so in smaller storms or in more frequent flooding, they're much more effective. If you have a Katrina or you know a Sandy, then really there's nothing that's going to that's going to protect you um and i think you know one of the big challenges about um adapting to climate is is thinking about the fact that we probably were going to have to not uh build everywhere along the coastline and and think that we're going to be safe right we have to recognize that these are high hazard areas and increase our open spaces, think about more parks, think about, um, you know, stepping back a little bit from the coastline um, in order to keep people safe. That's, that's interesting. Hearing you explain it, it now, like, it makes sense. Like I, you mentioned speed bumps, you know, like when you see the dunes back from the beach that, you know, you can put your, your towel out and, and, um, you know, have fun in, in the sand, you know, those dunes, like they look like speed bumps. So that, that makes sense. Um, you, you think of a salt marsh, it's a low lying flat area, you know, how's that a speed bump, but you know, the vegetation slowing things down, um, that kind of thing, um, that, that does make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, let, let's, I, I have to go back to those logs. Uh, you mentioned coconut fibers, where, where are you getting the materials for that? Like who's making these? Like what, how does that process go about for you to be able, be able to obtain them and use them? Right. Well, it's pretty clear that we're not growing coconuts in, in New Jersey, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> except on a couple of potted plants in some of the um, really big houses. But uh, um, so the, the material itself, most of it originates in India or Sri Lanka or in Indonesia places where there are lots of coconuts, right? And where there are industries uh, around the other coconut products that we use, coconut milk, um, you know, the coconut meats, um, all those types of things. And um, so there, and, and I, I have to admit, I don't know all the mechanics of the process, but 
Um, those those fibers, which are stripped from the husks as part of that processing, um, it was really a great idea. Somebody said, you know, we can use these. It's not just a waste product. Um, so, so they're bundled up and they are sent to the United States and there are um, um, importers here who we work with. There's a couple in New Jersey, there's some down in Maryland um, who understand that this material is now usable in construction as well as restoration, right? Because it acts like a, think about when you see a construction site that has a hay bales um, set around the edge of it, right? To keep the sediment from running off when it rains while the site is still being built before the grasses are put back into it. Um, this material acts in the same way. And because it's bound together fairly tightly and densely, it's it actually works better than hay bales in many cases. And I think that's probably, probably first started coming in around the construction industry, um, although I don't know that for a fact. But but because we've started, and, and we're not the only ones, obviously, if, as people that are engaged in coastal restoration around the country uh, have started to use it in these practices, that demand has gone gotten bigger, right? So the supply has gotten better. Um, and there are people that are coming now as, as providers of it. Um, like I said, there's one in New Jersey we use and one in Maryland. That, that is something that never ceases to amaze me is how people can look at, you know, byproducts or waste products, right? And say, instead of just throwing this away, like we can figure out a way to use this for something else, you know, like going back to like Rockefeller with, you know, the byproduct of gasoline from his oil uh, and kerosene production and being able to figure out like this is something you can use um, all the way to, you know, using you know, the byproduct from the cattle industry and, and bones and cartilage, you know, to, to make jello products. Um, and now, you know, coconut fibers <laughs> you know, of, <laughs> yeah. of all things and being like, Hey, this is a biodegradable product. This is something we can use, um, you know, it, in to prevent erosion, but isn't going to be something that's going to be present on the landscape forever. It's eventually going to turn to, you know, nutrient rich, rich soil and, and be an organic material like that. That is something that always amazes me that um, I really, really commend the people that can figure out ways to use these type of products, you know, in a different application uh, instead of just filling up a landfill. Uh to end this, I like to, to end most episodes, I like to ask like, what, what can people do? You know, like what can the average person, um, and maybe we can sort of define this as two different types of average people, people that live on the coast and people like me, uh, that live inland, like, what can we do to help, you know, your group or, you know, just in general, you know, coastal restoration and the ecological systems along the coast? Well, I think at the, you know, at the really big level, I always want to encourage people to participate in our democracy, right? We're debating laws that uh, influence how much money is available to do these coastal restoration projects, right? The laws that allow us to do them, the laws that focus um, the government agencies like the Fish and Wildlife Service um, on working on this kind of work. And that's important. Um, so people should always participate in decisions that are being made that affect them in their communities, you know, whether it's at the national level or the local level or in front of the city council in Pittsburgh. Um, 
And then, you know, you mentioned a couple things earlier that are really uh, things that people can do in their own homes that will help. And, you know, never underestimate the cumulative value or effect of lots of small actions. So, um, you know, make sure you're using, if you're going to use fertilizer, make sure you're using it responsibly and according to the to the instructions that are on the on the packaging. Um, find ways to conserve water, right? Don't um, don't waste water. Um, you know, plant gardens, plant rain gardens in your yard. Um, use rain barrels, right? There's a we have a program where we capture the stuff that comes out of your downspout into a big barrel that you can then use um, to water your lawn or water your plant, water your plants. Um, you know, we could, uh, uh, you know, there are always uh, local uh, projects that are going on one way or another, right? In, in Pittsburgh, um, along the rivers, there's similar work to what we do along the coastline. Um, and then um, I think, you know, the other thing is get involved. I mean, this is sort of a reflection of the first one, but uh, you know, we were talking about communities helping to rebuild the salt marshes and rebuild the oyster reefs. Um, there's lots of that work, type of work all, all over the place, whether it's on the coastline or whether it's, um, you know, inland. Um, and uh, whether you, you replant trees, right, help clean up the park, help control invasive species, um, pick up after your dog. I mean, there's a million things that people can do that will help and all will make... Um, Make it make a contribution to the to the overall effort, um, and then lastly, get your kids out into nature, right? Uh, Amen. Get, them, get them out in the backyard. I mean, it's just amazing that uh, you know if you spend a little time with them, turning over rocks in a stream, or you know just looking at the birds, sitting and watching the birds, um, um, they'll love it. They'll they'll actually I think be happier than if they're in front of a screen somewhere. Um, they'll obviously be healthier and it really is that the step that puts them on the pathway to being stewards of the planet which is not to me kind of make it be over to over melodramatic but um they're inheriting a planet that they're going to have some challenges that they're going to have to be creative like those people you you know you were just talking about um and so we want to give them a good start and give them a good love of the environment to, to ground that in so if people want to learn more about the American Thoreau Society, where where can they go? What can they do to engage with your group? So we have a website, uh, you know, www.literalsociety.org. Um, and all of our events and all of our uh, program work and our initiatives um, are all on there. Um, obviously, folks can... You know, we always appreciate when people contribute to help us to help us do our work, help uh, keep the very talented biologists and scientists and educators that work with us, you know, employed and out out there doing doing their thing. Uh, but there's also opportunities for direct action there, um, chances to weigh in on things, um, and then there's lots of we have lots of trips that we run. So there's opportunities to come uh, walk on the beach with us walk on the beach with a naturalist who really has an amazing eye for where the birds are and what the plants are. Um, so there's a lot of different ways to do that, but it all kind of starts there at the website. Um, we have Instagram accounts, we have Facebook accounts, um, and you can find us there as well. Well, Tim, thanks for joining me and uh, talking about this. This is uh, something that I definitely learned a lot about. So thank you for coming on. Well, Jason, I really appreciate it. And thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to, to spread the word. So I appreciate that. 
And that will do it for today's episode. I want to thank you for joining me. And I want to thank Tim for coming on and talking about the American Littoral Society and the work that they're doing. You know, as a as an inland person, thinking about the coastline and erosion of the coastline is not something that's at the forefront of my mind. But it is something that really all of us need to be worried about, need to be thinking about, need to be making sure that we are you know, actively doing things that are going to benefit uh, the coastline, or at least not have a, a negative impact, you know, things like development, um, you know, while, you know, a lot of people, myself included, sort of dream about that, like, you know, beach house, uh, vacation beach house, and seeing it, you know, being right on the beach, like, that's great and all, but we, we need to also make sure we're being mindful of things like keeping natural sand dunes around, um, you know, n not uh, applying, uh, fertilizers and pesticides and, and herbicides that are going negatively negatively affect those sand dunes and the natural vegetation that's there that is really you know the natural defense uh, to all the impacts that Tim talked about you know and it's great to see you know we've had as Tim mentioned we've had for hundreds of years now we've been doing things to protect the shoreline using uh, you know, ways to sort of harden the coastline against this erosion. But it's great for me to see these sort of natural materials being used. Um, you know, and as he noted, you know, then, you know, future vegetation can grow out of these things. And, and we're using a waste product instead of it just going to waste. We're using it and giving it uh, another life uh, in a way to, you know, give back to, to the earth. And I think that's a great thing. Uh, make sure if you haven't done already, check out the episode notes down there. You'll see the website. You'll see a uh, link to uh, their the Facebook page, Instagram page for the American Littoral Society. And I've also included a link to sign up for their newsletter so you can get some information uh, about different education and, and conservation advocacy and project things that, that are going on uh, with the organization. And then, of course, don't forget, uh, as you hear real quick, the ad uh, that will play for uh, Wild Rooted, uh, nurture yourself with nature, visit wildrooted.com and uh, at that link and use the discount code and you will be glad you did. Until next time, get outside, take someone with you, and as always, stay wild. Just like you, I've been on a search for ways to tell the world I'm passionate about the outdoors. Things like a beautifully designed sticker, a well-fitting hat, or a comfortable shirt, all while working to help the outdoor community. Well, I think I finally found a company who checks all the boxes. Wild Rooted is an eco-conscious, family-owned company with a wide range of products, from stickers to shirts printed with algae ink, and hat patches, key fob holders, and keychains made with a plant-based leather alternative called Miram. They have an inspirationally designed product for you. Not only that, but 10% of all profits are donated to our wonderful national parks and forests. It doesn't get any better than that. Head over to wildrooted.com and use CU Free Ship 23 at checkout to get your gear. That's CU F R E E. SHIP23 at wildrooted.com.